He is risen. Today we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The New Testament tells us that after being crucified on Good Friday, that Jesus physically rose from the dead on the third day, which was the first day of the week, Sunday. And it is for this reason that Christians um, generally, uh, we don't want to refer to Sunday as the Sabbath. We, we refer to it as the Lord's Day, because it's on that day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the heart of Christian faith. Uh, this morning, we encounter one of the more colorful disciples in the person of Thomas, He's often referred to as Doubting Thomas uh, because of the events recorded in this passage. And from two uh, other passages that relate to Thomas, we learn that, you know, this is a disciple that, that uh, temperamentally tends towards the, you know, the pessimistic, um, uh, the, the skeptical side of things. He's also a disciple that is uh, willing to, um, say, uh, to speak what he's thinking. He has a lot of courage in this respect, and both of these attributes come out here right at the end of John's gospel. So this morning, I'm reading from John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 through 31. I invite you to stand uh, for the hearing of God's inspired word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, who has power over life and death, come according to your mercy and kindness, that our hearts and minds might be receptive to your word, a word that comes not from the world but from above. May our souls find refreshment and strength through the preaching of your word and by the movement of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We begin by observing that like so many in the world today, Thomas is an unbelieving, he's a skeptical disciple. So Thomas appears with the other 10 disciples um, eight days following the resurrection of Jesus. 
For some unknown reason, Thomas was not present with the other uh, disciples in the upper room when Jesus made his first appearance to them a week earlier. You know, Thomas, and you can imagine, so Thomas went for a week uh, in confusion, sadness, um, in contrast to the other disciples who had met with Jesus in that upper room, uh, who went, you know, followed followed, you can imagine, with rejoicing and the praise of the Lord for what he has accomplished in the raising of Jesus from the dead. And that just reminds me that you miss a Sunday. You miss a lot. (laughs) Of course, the disciples went to Thomas, their friend, and they reported to him the good news that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. And even though they were in agreement on this point, it's interesting that Thomas refuses to believe on the basis of those who he was very close with, his his best friends. He refuses to believe their unanimous testimony. And so this is where that famous line comes when where we get the nickname Doubting Thomas. Verse 25, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We can all empathize, I'm sure, with Thomas's unwillingness to believe. After all, dead men just don't come back to life. Thomas had to have been a little confused about the adamant testimony of the other disciples. However, he just probably concluded that the others must have longed so much for the death to not have happened. He must have just concluded this was this kind of mass wishful thinking. But Thomas was too much of a realist to be convinced that Jesus had come back from the dead. He had to see for himself. And and this highlights just an important uh, New Testament reality. And that is that the disciples, the Jews of Jesus' day, did not have a category for a bodily resurrection uh, before the end of the age. So the Jewish people had this idea of a general revelation that would would occur for all of God's people, but this would not happen until the the final judgment, until the, the um, uh, the final reckoning. And so here, um, Thomas, he just cannot wrap his mind around uh, this idea of a bodily resurrection. And and this also points to the idea that this is not something that the disciples would have just made up. They didn't have a category for bodily resurrection of this nature. And even if they had made it up, nobody would have believed it. But we should not conclude from this that Thomas was closed-minded to the truth. We should not identify Thomas with modern-day skeptics and philosophers who not only demand empirical proof, as Thomas did, but they go further. They allow their pride or their, their sometimes hidden biases, their commitment to materialism or commitment to naturalism as a worldview to close them off from honestly weighing the evidence that is available. They presuppose that miracles can't happen. They presuppose that we live in a closed system. And so 
any um, evidence to the contrary, they immediately reject because they've already assumed the conclusion from the beginning. This was not Thomas. He did say he'll never believe, but actually he's willing to be persuaded. Rather than going off on his own in a kind of religious despair, he puts himself in the place where the evidence can be honestly examined. And so part of the challenge of the New Testament is for people to put themselves in the shoes of Thomas, to be open-minded, to even be open-minded that often these presuppositional assumptions that people have about the nature of the world, that's a worldview. And there's not real evidence for this, okay? In fact, if you think about it, there's nothing within that closed system that explains how it got here in the first place. Everything within the the natural world declines. It will come to an end. So how are we here? Where did we come from in the middle of eternity? Thomas was willing to be open-minded. And now as the disciples come together, probably for prayer and worship, the focus of the passage shifts away from Thomas and on to Jesus. And it's a tender moment, one in which grace is extended to a skeptic. In verses 26 and following, if Thomas, um, well, you can imagine before I read that, but you can imagine maybe some of the thinking of the other disciples. You can imagine if Thomas is, you know, they're thinking to themselves, if Thomas is going to dismiss the combined testimony of 10 of his closest friends, at least they thought so, what else is left to do? He's always like this. You can just imagine their thinking. He's never going to change. If Thomas is going to continue to be such a contrarian, who needs that? Who needs him? He's beyond hope. Now, probably, you, you may know someone like Thomas. Maybe you're Thomas. In either case, it's instructive to see that Jesus doesn't share that opinion. In fact, Jesus shows this amazing patience towards the skeptical unbeliever. He's willing to come to Thomas and graciously provide evidence that he will need as an apostle. And sometimes when we're slow to understand, we're slow to believe, we have all kinds of doubts, our trust in the Lord is weak, and we may think to ourselves, have, have I provoked the Lord, you know, just in my own, you know, unbelief? Is he angry with me? And, and here we see this tender response of the good shepherd, which is his response to us. The Lord is tender and compassionate always with his sheep. There may be a rebuke that is in order, but even that comes out of a tender love and a concern for his children. And this should be a reminder to us to also be patient (laughs) with those in our lives that are perhaps just struggling with belief and, and we just get frustrated, but the Lord models for us this this tender patience with those who struggle in matters of faith more than others. And you should know this. Most people, most Christians, most Christians who have been raised in the church and Christian families, most will experience times in their life, maybe because of circumstances, 
around them, maybe because they've been confronted with some objection that they've never heard before about the nature of God or about, you know, the trustworthiness of the scriptures or something along those lines. And their faith just gets thrown up in the air and they, they go through this, this deep struggle of faith and doubt and skepticism. Here's what you need to know. That is not unusual. Most, most uh, people, including Christians, will experience these times of doubt at some, some point along their spiritual journeys. But I, what I would say to that, though, is don't let it throw you. And if you think you've heard some objection that's never been encountered before, 99% of the time, there's very little that's new under the sun. These are objections that have been raised countless times throughout the church's history. And so 99% of the time, there are answers to these objections that have been raised. And so I encourage you, if, if that's you, like seek out uh, me as pastor, seek out uh, an elder, seek out you know a teacher or just another Christian that you just respect uh, that's been walking with the Lord for a while. And just share with them, you know, some of these struggles and let them help you walk through uh, those doubts. Well, indeed, Jesus' patience and willingness to meet Thomas where he was struggling results in one of the great confessions of faith in all of Scripture. Here, this former skeptic, as a result of his own personal encounter with the risen Lord, is suddenly filled with faith. So Thomas answers him, my Lord... And my God. It's not clear that Thomas actually needed to reach out and touch Jesus. But in any case, Thomas is so convinced that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead that he immediately not only declares the truth of the resurrection, but he goes on to declare that Jesus is far more than any mere human mortal. Indeed, he quickly concludes that standing before him is God incarnate. That is, God in the flesh. For Jesus to have been raised from the dead is a sign to Thomas that Jesus is who he has claimed to be, that he is nothing less than God. Now, this is another point, you know, that sometimes skeptics will raise. They say, you know, Jesus never explicitly claims to be divine, and there are many ways that he indirectly does so. But just take a look at this. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. There are times in the New Testament where maybe an angel arises or the apostles um, at, at one point are mistaken for gods, and people begin to bow down. And when this happens, whether it's an angel or, in this case, the apostles, they're very quick. Get up. What are you doing? I'm not God. You know, reserve your worship for God. But note what doesn't happen in this situation. Peter, for the first time in all of John's gospel, explicitly refers to Jesus as God. And there's no rebuke. There's no correction. There's no, oh, Thomas, you've made a mistake. I'm, I'm really just, I'm, I'm not really any different than Moses or Elijah or Elisha or the prophets of old. I'm just, I'm God's man to be sure, but you've gone too far. That is not Christ's response. It's not even the editorial response of the author, John. He could have corrected it if he wanted to. But he allows this confession 
to stand. So this means it's quite correct, even necessary, that we worship Christ as God. It means that unlike any other religious founder, this God-man, Jesus, actually has the ability to save you to the uttermost. This is who is coming to be your Redeemer and your Savior. He and he alone has the power. He has the authority to grant eternal life. But what about those who live far in the future? What about us? (laughs) Who are in the future of this encounter that Thomas has with Jesus? Are we to expect Jesus to appear to us in the same way? And this question, I think, leads Jesus to speak what is only the second beatitude in the entire Gospel of John. A a beatitude is just a a term that describes those uh, specific sayings in the Bible that begin with the word blessed. You know, Jesus and Matthew, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, So here's only the second time that we see this this important uh, beatitude being expressed. Uh, This is verse 29. And Jesus says this, Have you believed because you have seen me? And then here's this beatitude, Blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is a way in which God's favor is granted by believing in a way that, with evidence that that is um, different from what Thomas had. In his commentary, um, uh, the late James Boyce explains this passage this way. He says, so we may grant that Jesus is not advocating a faith entirely without evidence, okay? But that still does not answer the question, what does Jesus mean? I believe he's speaking not of a subjective faith, but of a satisfied faith. This is, this is what triggers this blessing of the Lord. He's speaking of faith that is satisfied with what God provides and is therefore not yearning for visions, miracles, esoteric experiences, or various forms of success as evidence of God's favor. In other words, God has provided us with plenty of evidence to satisfy the faith of the honest skeptic. I was listening this, uh, just this last week to um, a podcast, The White Horse Inn, and they were describing these minimal facts uh, that concern the death and resurrection. And by minimal facts, they're, they're describing these facts that are accepted not just by Christian scholars and not just by conservative Christian scholars, but by Jewish scholars or agnostic or even atheist scholars who nevertheless have um, advanced scholarship in in relevant areas like history or philosophy or even the New Testament. There are a lot of people who are um, uh, scholars of the New Testament without proclaiming to actually believe it. (laughs) That may surprise you. So, um, this scholar, uh, a, a man by the name of Gary Habermas, Dr. Habermas, um, he did all of this work over a period of five years and collecting data about what is it about this New Testament narrative that even those who are agnostic would accept. And he came up with three basic facts. 
This isn't the whole story, but it's just interesting to me, and I think it, it goes a long way to suggesting that Christians are not out to lunch on this. Here they are. Number one, and, and to, be a multi, uh, to be this minimal fact, um, these facts have to be attested in multiple sources, not just the New Testament, including sources that come from those who are hostile. And often this would be ancient uh, Jewish critics. So here they are. Number one, almost unanimous agreement among these scholars that Jesus died to the pro- uh, through the process of crucifixion. Okay, so we begin with Good Friday. And this is a critical fact because uh, Dr. Habermas describes there are scholars who deny things like, did Jesus even exist? That's this kind of common kind of uh, refrain that sometimes you will hear in the, in the popular, uh, popularly in the world around us. And, and, and Dr. Habermas says that is true. And there are even some scholars who will suggest that there was no such thing as Jesus. But he says, if you limit this down to scholars who have advanced uh, academic uh, work and who have been published by their peers, in other words, they've had to submit their thoughts to uh, the peer review of, their, of others, if you limit it to this group, almost all of them will have nothing to do with the idea that Jesus never existed. Not only do they say that he existed, but he was executed. And he was executed as a criminal, um, on a Roman cross. Almost unanimous agreement. Very soon afterwards, uh, this is number two. Very soon afterwards, Jesus' disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Now, notice how I said that. At following, um, uh, uh, shortly after his death, Almost all scholars will admit, they allow this into evidence, so to speak, that the disciples believed (laughs) that they had seen the risen Christ. Now, no, they're not saying that they actually did see the risen Christ, but they are willing to accept that they believed they saw the risen Christ. And history tells us that they not only believed this, but they oriented their entire lives around. This was right at the heart of their earliest teaching and preaching that went out to the nations that began right in the backyard where the, you know, this, this death took place in Jerusalem. Well, not only did friends claim to see Jesus, but minimal fact number three, but also uh, those who were initially hostile to Jesus hostile to the resurrection. Namely, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, whose name would be changed to Paul, also experienced what he believed was a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And this is from a man, and this, we just forget this, but Saul hated the Christians. He wanted to stamp it out. He was a well-educated, well-respected uh, Jewish leader prior to his conversion. Even skeptics will accept these minimal facts into evidence. And that helps us because then you have to ask the question, well, what explains that all these disciples believed and were willing, almost all of them, to be martyred for this belief in the resurrection of Jesus? And the same with, J, uh, with Paul. And I didn't even mention another potentially hostile um, uh, witness, the very brother of Jesus. And they, most, more than 75% of scholars will also accept 
James was the brother of Jesus, and he also believed, became an important leader within the early New Testament church in Jerusalem. The honest question is simply, what best explains those minimal facts? And New Testament scholars are like, it's, it's because it really happened. We don't live in a closed system. There is a God who made this world. And Jesus was God in the flesh. As people try to wrestle with this and other facts that I have not discussed, again, the best answer is the actual resurrection of Jesus. And so we just want to conclude with what is the point of it all? Well, the Apostle John tells us in verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he was God's anointed one, the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, life in his name. Not just that you would be smarter, (laughs) not just that you might have some comfort, but that you would experience life. And the resurrection tells us something about this life. In Jesus's bodily resurrection, he is receiving a body that actually belongs properly to the age which is yet to come. When the new heaven and the new earth uh, comes, Jesus has the first resurrected body that will never die, that will never experience sickness or sorrow or death. And part of the life that we're invited to enjoy is is our union with Christ, so that by faith in him, we are united with Jesus. We're united with the, the resurrection of Jesus. And the result of this is that we too, even in this present life, begin to experience the life of the age which is yet to come. Like Thomas, all of us are now called by God to confess Jesus as not simply the Lord and the God, but to go one step further and to make it personal by saying, my Lord and my God. So a simple question. Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and your God? Do not leave here today without getting that question right. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you raised up your Son and gave him glory, that faith and hope might be in you. Lord, make us alive also by your mighty power, from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. Lord, cause us to set our affections on things above so that we may at the last have part in the resurrection of the saints. May we partake of the glory of your heavenly kingdom where Jesus, the forerunner, has gone before us and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. God, blessed forever. Amen.